On this episode of This Truly Is, we welcome back Nikki and Olu O'Neill. Our first conversation around racial injustice and inequality provided us with so much insight that we knew we'd be remiss if we didn't connect with Nikki and Olu again to get their take on the reform debate and next steps in keeping the momentum alive. Without further ado, this truly is The Next Steps. Nikki and Olu, thank you so much for joining us again. Um, we really enjoyed our first conversation where we got to touch on a variety of different topics. One thing that we didn't get to touch on when it comes to sort of race relations and the global response is opportunities for reform and, and change that might happen at the systemic level. And, you know, we talked about so many different things It felt like it would be a bit remiss to not talk about what the future could look like and what types of positive changes could take place to sort of reshape certain institutions. So maybe at a broad level, obviously, when we're talking about racism in general, it, it, it touches so many different aspects of life. I think what first and foremost people are uh, perhaps focused on at least a lot right now, just in the aftermath of obviously what has happened with George Floyd most recently is at the policing level and with police departments and how you know police deal with the black community in general. So maybe that's a good place to start the discussion and we can kind of take it in a variety of different areas. But when we're looking at policing and the justice system in general, I'm curious now that uh, perhaps you've had some time to think about where we're at and where we might be able to go, that either of you have any thoughts or opinions on what reform could look like in a way that would create some positive change. There's a few things I think need to change. Some of them are obvious. I don't know why they still haven't changed, but one would be body cams. Uh, I don't know why that isn't implemented so that we can actually see what's going on. And in order to manage that, I think uh, we need to stay away from what they do in the States. We need like a third party to manage the software and data so that they're unbiased, so that, you know, footage isn't getting deleted or missing. Police training is six months in Canada. In the States, it's also, actually some states are actually four months. And I think that is ridiculous. I think it should be at least two years. And it would make sense that in the first year, you become some sort of community officer where you don't have a firearm and you're helping in the community, whether you're in schools, events, de-escalating situations, and you're accompanying social workers in order to deal with mental health issues. I don't think until after the second year, you become a full licensed police officer. And having that training with the community would actually help you in the future. Another thing I think we need to focus on is hate crimes. Now, in Canada, there is no minimum penalty for hate crimes. The maximum is five years. And I think we need to set a minimum so that people who do these things know what they may face, um, whether it's a probation period, a large fine, and maybe some sort of racial sensitivity training would actually help to fix this issue and deter people from doing these things. Um, I, I do agree with Olu on those points. I think what a lot of people have been calling for at the moment is to defund the police. Essentially, that seems like, you know, when people hear that defund the police, the people immediately become afraid. Their thought is that if we defund the police or we get rid of the police, what happens to crime? You know, how do we take care of criminals and crime? And I think what's important here is that I don't know 
statistics and I'm not an expert in any of these, you know, but I have seen some statistics talking about the fact that crime has not decreased, although police budgets have grossly increased. So the increase in budget, the increase in the amount of police officers is not actually decreasing the amount of crime. It actually is increasing as uh, time goes on. So the idea of defunding the police speaks to taking those resources away from police officers who clearly are not equipped to deal with all these situations. And when I say all these situations, what I'm saying is that a lot of the times when people are calling the police, they're not calling the police because they require a particular person with a firearm, uh, you know, mental health cases, even these uh, situations where people are calling 911 because they feel afraid around Black people, whether they're selling water or barbecuing in the park or, you know, these strange situations, and they're calling 911, which then when a police officer arrives is then escalated in, and many times ending up in someone being killed or harmed in some way. So a lot of these situations don't require a police officer with a firearm. So when they talk about defunding the police, what they're talking about is taking resources away from the police and putting them in communities, whether that is in the form of creating these task force, like Olu was talking about, that are equipped to deal with these situations at hand, whether it's a mental health situation where you have a social worker or somebody who is equipped in those areas, and also in creating community programs that help people in those communities grow and learn and heal with their own traumas. There is trauma in these communities. There is work that needs to be done. And this is not the work of police officers. There's much more that needs to be done. And that's where the resources go. You know, ever since we started hearing about the term defunding the police, I've been reading a lot of comments in the comment sections of posts, Reddit, different forums, Twitter, kind of get a sense of people's reaction to this. And I think by and large, people aren't understanding what it actually means. So I appreciate you breaking it down. But a lot of the comments that I'm reading are coming from a place of concern. And these people are concerned that if we defund the police and relocate a part of their budget in different ways, they're worried that either cops will quit or the next wave of police officers will be quite smaller. It might deter people from actually wanting to enroll and become a police officer in one way or another. What do you have to say to those people who have this concern? It's not on an, it might not be on an educated level, but they are worried about the future of policing. Olu, can we start with you? I can understand the concern. That's because you don't understand what it means. Defunding doesn't mean that, you know, you're stripping all the funds going to the police department, or we're taking a piece of it, like Nikki said, in order to develop the community and help the community. By defunding and changing the way things are done in the police department, if those people quit because they have an issue with it, that's on them. Those are not the police officers we want on our streets anyways. We want people that are for change and want to help the situation. It's difficult to be a police officer in these times where things are turbulent and you're hated (laughs) by a large majority of the world. It's tough to be a police officer. You have pressures of doing your job for the community and then the pressures of being loyal to your police community. So it's a very tough situation to be in. You're putting yourself in harm's way a lot of the time. You're having to deal with situations in a very 
quick manner. You have to respond very quickly and, and your response determines life and death for you and other people around you. So it's tough regardless. It's tough to be a police officer. And I think that's why Olu is talking about training, you know, but I think people that are concerned that people will not or uh, individuals will not join the police force when we talk about defunding the police. The main issue there is their lack of understanding of what that actually means, because the two are not related. Defunding the police is not speaking to the conditions or the resources that the police have. It's speaking to fixing the communities that are broken. The goal is not to have more police, right? The goal in all of this in our system is to have less criminals, right? So if we're talking about how to create less criminals, then you do that by investing in the communities that need it. I don't want this to be like a wide brush painted so people think that everybody that has had encounters with the police are criminals because they're not. But criminals or situations that create criminals or poverty, lack of resources, if you're talking about creating less criminals then you're talking about let's go into these communities where people are disenfranchised and put the resources there where they can um, flourish, where they can grow, where they can get the help that they need. To me, it doesn't make sense because if we're talking about how we want the end goal, the end goal is less criminals and not more police, right? Um, Nikki, when you and I got together about a week ago, we were talking about reform in the workplace and how we're seeing more and more brands and businesses now hiring on black men and women to join the team. They're diversifying, I guess, to fit the time, to suit the narrative, whatever their reasoning is. What other areas of society do you feel reform is needed right now and not a day later? I think reform is needed everywhere. What we need to understand is that we have, as a society, as a nation, as you know, North Americans, have this huge elephant of you know, slavery, colonization, you know, these, these nations have uh, this at hand. So when that ended, when they realized, hey, this is probably not the right way to go, there was no period in which there was any sort of correction. You know, when you bring over somebody uh, to work the fields, a slave um, against their will, there's a period in which you have to now brainwash, I'm going to use that word, brainwash the people who are doing these, this, the harm, because in order for somebody to do such atrocities, they need to feel okay with doing that. You need to dehumanize these people so that people feel okay with mistreating them, with them being treated in this way, right? So once slavery ends, there wasn't a period where you rehumanize the people. There wasn't a period where people were untaught that white people are not more superior than blacks. There wasn't a period of healing. Black people didn't have a period of healing White people didn't have a period of healing or acknowledgement. So nothing was done. We just kind of said, hey, slavery's over and expected that things were just going to adjust to themselves. And that's not how things happen. There was never this period where a correction of sorts of mentality. And I think that's why we have all the trickling and the, the repercussions of what has transpired. Because when you ask what industry needs to change, it's across the board. It's not a particular industry. This is not an industry issue in the sense that it's, this is a systemic issue across the globe, like, right? So what we need to focus on is this idea of decolonization. What does that look like? What were the effects? How did it change the way people thought about themselves, thought about others? And in doing that, 
It allows us to really pinpoint the roots of the issues, pinpoint the things that we need to think about, change the way we think, reframe the way we look at race and people. And in doing that, it now begins to um, translate into all the industries across the board. So I don't look at it as a segmented thing. Like, for example, I'm an interior designer. I'm an artist first, but the work that I do is very much in interior design. So if, I, if somebody asks me, how do we uh, deal with race um, and inequality in the design industry? That's a loaded question because you're not just talking about the lack of Black interior designers and architects. You're also talking about the fact that the people that are using the service of interior design are usually people that are wealthy. And that largely is not in the black and brown communities, perhaps a little bit more now. But I mean, this is a luxury service you're providing. And if you're talking about the black and brown communities that are disenfranchised, they're likely not going to be hiring me. There's lack of representation. You don't see a lot of people that look like me on the screen or on, you know, networks. So when you're a little black or brown boy or girl looking at the TV, you don't think, oh, I could be an interior designer. I could be an architect. That's not something that crosses your mind. You likely think you could be a rapper or a basketball player or or some sort of sport. You know what I'm saying? So I think that it's not just this one quick fix. And to say, how do you change or or address inequality in my industry, for example, interior design, that's not a one solution answer. And it's not something I don't want to focus on the idea of like changing the symptoms. I much rather go to the roots. And from there, once you now sift out what that root is, it then stems into and blossoms into all these other amazing things and then takes away all the the things that we're trying to fight right now. To look at the symptoms is way too overwhelming. Yeah, she's right. It's everywhere. I think at the core, we need to figure out a way to eliminate racial bias. Uh, you were talking about companies, you know, going after diversity hires. A lot of times and these companies get away with doing things that are racist, just plain out racist. I think in order to fix something like this, I think we would need like a third party HR department. Like just the way, just the same way that, you know, food and electronics industries have to report to certification standards. I think if every company had to do something like that, there would be a close eye on what they're doing, what they're saying, and what's going on there. Because a lot of times, some of these companies, you have a biased HR department, or they hire a third party who they are paying to handle their HR stuff, which doesn't really help the employees that they're working for. That's one I can think of for for companies. Education, there's tons of stuff in education in schools. I have a bunch of ideas in terms of schools, like our counselors in schools um, need to be more diverse. There are situations where, especially Black kids, are talking to counselors and counselors, instead of encouraging them as to what they want to do, they are discouraging them and are, I guess, pushing them to do mediocre jobs or career paths. That's another place that we can really work on that as well. There is businesses having funding for Black communities or even minorities. It's interesting. Today, Ford talked about uh, $13 million going to a new program called Equality of Opportunity. It's really interesting how they chose those words because it's very misleading because the program is actually for youth. And then there was 43 recipients of this program and they only mentioned two or three of them. 
and one focused on Black mothers, another one focused on new Africans coming to the country and how to deal with um, income in Canada. And they mentioned one about natives in Toronto. But the program itself isn't about equality of opportunity. It's about young business people, young leaders who want to put together a business. So I think we need to actually have programs that actually help the Black communities or minorities with grant programs or mentorship programs in order to help them succeed when it comes to business. I don't like the idea of diversification or inclusion. And and the reason being is because in and of itself, it implies that the other person is another, right? So they are to diversify or to include somebody is to say that they don't perhaps belong there to begin with, if that makes sense. So I don't know if I don't really like that term. The thing is this, if you have a a company that needs to now diversify, and I'm saying this understanding that you need to start somewhere. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't diversify. I'm not saying that companies shouldn't hire people of color or black people in their companies. Absolutely, they should. But this idea of inclusion and this idea of diversification is something that I, that I have an issue with because of that, because it implies another. And I think what ends up happening is a few things. One, black people, we're not asking for charity. And I, Bridget has sent me something like that and I had seen it earlier, but we're not asking for charity. We're actually qualified. So. This idea, it implies almost that we need a handout. We're not looking for a handout. What we're looking is to not be discriminated against. So in including people, you end up a lot of times companies hire black people or hire people of color into their organizations with diversification in mind, not really thinking that these people in some way are of true value because they are just equipped to do the job, right? So what becomes difficult is advancement in the company. Is this somebody that you're going to hire on and then they have the same access to opportunity within the company that everybody else does? Because oftentimes they're not. You don't see that a lot of uh, people of color at um, the executive level. That's the issue that I have. We're not looking to just be hired so you can show that your task force is diverse. We're looking for people to be able to be included because they are of value. People of color, that's the reason you, you diversify even stock portfolios. They, everything has a different perspective. Everything offers a different benefit. So it actually has to be looked at as a benefit and not just something, a task that you do so that you can evade public embarrassment. I don't know. I don't like that term. I get you not liking that term, but in some way it has to be forced because if people inside these companies aren't going to make that effort to change, If it's implemented that you have to do it, it's the only point where they'll actually see that opportunity to, oh, you know what? This person actually has the potential to do A, B, and C, right? But from the outside, it's hard to see that, especially when you don't have diversity in your business and you only see them one way without having them in there. I 100% agree. I'm saying that I think that it's necessary. You have to start from somewhere. But my my issue is the idea of inclusion and, and diversity implies in itself that you're needing to hire people because they need to be seen in your organization rather than for their skill. I'm not saying that we should get rid of it. I'm just saying that, that the, the thought of it also is problematic for me. Well, Nikki, that makes me think of what Al Sharpton said at, uh, I believe it was George Floyd's funeral when he was delivering a eulogy, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was something to the effect of, you know, we don't need handouts or your pity. We just need you to 
to get your knee off our neck. It's interesting. We're, we're talking about business and opportunities and both to get a foot in the door somewhere and then to have the exact same equality of opportunity once you're there so that it's, you know, as it should be a meritocracy and the people that have, you know, the best skills and abilities continue to get new opportunities. It's interesting the way that sort of corporations have responded to this to a large extent has been huge sums of money that have been donated all over millions of dollars from different organizations for a variety of different things. I mean, Olu, you had mentioned that you feel like there should be investments in mentorship and career guidance and things of that nature. I'm curious, with all of these different companies prepared to make donations and are looking at different ways and opportunities to find a way to give back, what do you think they should be doing? What is the most effective way to make use of those funds? What I actually like Apple actually created a program for African-Americans to learn about the tech industry in order to gain access to working, potentially working in a company like Apple. So developing programs to teach people about coding or about whatever your business is, wherever your money is coming from, in some way, direct those people back to your business. You know, look for those people. I think it would be a smart thing to do. But there's so many, so many ways that you can use this money. It's, it's endless, whether it's in community programs or schools in um, less favorable areas or business programs, education programs. There, there's so many. It, like, I, I can't pinpoint one. I think the easiest thing for these companies is to direct their energy where their business lies, you know, whatever industry they're in. Why don't we have enough black and brown people in this industry? Let's see what I can do to help. I think that would make sense. I agree with Olua. I think that there's not one stream. Everybody has their part to play because this is such a a very complex situation. It's going to take a complex solution. So I think that I like the idea of, of people investing their resources, their time, their energy into the things that they understand, that they know about, that they are passionate about. And I think in doing that uh, and, and in having so many diverse responses, then it, it touches people on so many different levels. Like outreach is huge. Like, for example, again, I'll speak to the design industry because that's where that's what I know. But in the design industry, the fact that there aren't a lot of black students that are applying for schools, architects or interior design schools. Uh, So when we were growing up, me and my brother, we're Nigerian and my parents are traditional um, African parents where you could be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Those were it, you know, and it's it's not to no fault of my parents. They just know that these are the um, professions in which you are likely to be successful. They're not thinking about the arts. To them, the arts is hobby, right? So it's that education. It's the outreach that people, so that students know, hey, look, this is available. You can be successful doing this. Having people go out to elementary schools or uh, high schools to say, hey, this is a path that you can take is huge. So that's not necessarily just a court. Like I think there's, there's so many different avenues in which people need to tackle and touch and uh, to get to fix the problem, if that makes sense. And I think when it comes to corporations, them putting their energies, resources into the things that they understand, like Olu said, is huge. I think I agree with that. That makes a lot of sense to me. And one of the major industries that we talked about in our first discussion was media and representation in media. And that sort of ties into 
some reform and also an industry that could very easily just do what it normally does, but include all types of different groups and, and ensure that there's uh, equal representation within it. One that really jumps to mind is the Bachelor Bachelorette series. It's been on for 40 seasons. There was one black bachelorette previously, Rachel, and they just now announced that for the first time in ever, there's going to be a black male leading bachelorette named Matt. And I bring this up because the first time that we were speaking, I, I guess a couple weeks back, from a, a communication and a societal perspective and a media perspective, there was a real push for everyone to get behind this and to say, why aren't you supporting this more or support this more or be more overt with your support? And then what's really funny now is the pendulum has kind of swung the other way. And as a prime example of that, there was a video that was posted on YouTube that is Hollywood stars partnering with the NAACP for an I take responsibility PSA announcement. And it's a series of faces of um, white actors and actresses that most people would know. And they're saying, I take responsibility. And it has 1,000 likes right now and 56,000 dislikes from a whole bunch of people that are saying, where were you? Where were you? It's very self-righteous and smug of you to suddenly now, you know, find it convenient to step forward like this or for, you know, The Bachelor. After 40 seasons, congratulations, you finally got it right. The pendulum has kind of swung where there's some cynicism publicly towards people that are now trying to make some changes. So. I'm curious where you both stand on this one. On one hand, you know, it's good that these things are happening. But on the other hand, obviously, many people in the public can't help but say, but what took so long? What's wrong with this? How did, how did this take so long? Where do you stand on this? You know, what's funny, uh, for a long time, the argument was that, oh, there's not enough viewers that are interested in seeing, you know, a Black Bachelor or uh, a Black story, you know? And it shows, like, if you look at the number one movies in the past few years, there have been tons of movies killing it in box office that has a full Black cast. I think that was a big part of it because that wasn't, quote unquote, their target market. Now that they're under fire, they're quick to push out uh, a Black Bachelor 40 seasons later. It's kind of like backhanded thing. It's just like, it's a slap. It's like, yes, you know, you did it. People will watch it now. But at the same time, it had to take half of the states burning down before you made change and people calling you out. I saw that video with actors saying, I take responsibility, I take responsibility. To Personally, it didn't offend me. I thought it was a little bit strange. I appreciate the gesture. That's what I saw it as. I saw it as a gesture. Um, I don't know how effective it's going to be. I don't think it's going to, you know, spark any real change. It's one of these performative things. But at the same time, it's I saw the intent behind it. And I guess I'm going to stand with the intent behind it. I don't think it was effective in the way that they thought it was going to be. And I don't really know what exactly they were trying to accomplish. If it was just purely done so that it could shine light on the fact that they would like white people to look at the situation differently and take responsibility and now start to figure out, okay, now that we take responsibility, what can we do that's actually meaningful? Then sure. You know, but I don't think it had any real value. They didn't, they didn't say much 
other than I take responsibility. So that's purely what it was. I took it for what it was, which was it was a performance, right? That's the thing with with this is that there's going to be so many different pendulums swinging in all different directions. And depending on people's perspective, where they're coming from, things that are dear to them, uh, their biases and their own internalized systems, the response to the situation and how people respond and how people look at how people are responding it's so it's going to be convoluted. It's hard to know how to navigate this situation. That's why the past couple of weeks have been very emotional. And that's why we've just seen things uh, swing all in all different directions. People not knowing what to say, people not knowing what to do, people trying to say something because they feel compelled to say something, saying the wrong thing and getting backlash. And that like, it's just a, this whole craziness of, of what's going on. So that's why in the last podcast, I had mentioned that people have to understand first and foremost, when they're stepping into this arena, that it's going to be a messy arena, you know, and you have to be prepared for the mess and be okay. Uh, Once you've accepted that mess, then you can come in there saying, okay, I understand that I'm probably going to get hit. I'm probably going to say the wrong thing. I'm probably going to do the wrong thing, but I'm coming here because I want to learn. I'm coming here because I want to help. And I would rather show up and help than stand back and um, be part of the problem. It's tough and, and, you know, the response is difficult, but I do want to note that we were, we've been talking about so many different areas here, but I think when, if you want to break it down in a way that kind of makes, helps people to kind of understand how we can tackle this in, in a, in a more concise way, I think there's different types of racism that need to be addressed. There's structural, there's um, institutional, there's interpersonal, and then there's internalized. So we have the internalized work that everybody needs to do and that they do that by um, educating themselves, by knowledge, by figuring out their own biases, figuring out their own brainwashing of source that they have kind of internalized. And that's been actually very difficult for me, finding out and realizing um, my own anti-Black behaviors, which is really strange for me. Like it felt weird for me to, to, to kind of have that mirror put up and be like, oh, crap. Um, interpersonal, how you interact with other people, how you how your biases show up in your everyday lives and how it affects the people that are around you. Institutional, like the, the policies and the practices that are reinforced in the standards that we have in our institutions and the workforce uh, and then our society, structural. So I think if we break it down in those four elements, then we can then begin to say, OK, how do I tackle these? Where do I have power to tackle these and, and then move forward? Does that does that make sense? No, that's a, that's a very good point that you make. And um, I want to backpedal a little bit before Nikki and you were talking about healing. I'd love to talk about healing within the black community because what you're dealing with right now, I can't, I can't personally sum up, of course, but there has to be a lot of triggering moments. Um, you're reminded of a lot of trauma that you've been through personally and different experiences, whether it's back in your childhood or something that happened in the workplace three years ago. What can we do collectively and what is the best way, in your opinion, for uh, the black community to heal during this time and and really check in with their mental health moving forward? I think there's different levels of healing. I think there's healing that needs to be done across the board, not just in the black community. And then there's healing that needs to be done in the black community. I think on day to day level, it's hard for me to call it healing. I'm the type of person when it comes to healing, I rather cut out the disease, then heal the symptom. So what we're doing right now is coping. Well, you know, meditation and, um, you know, self-care, those are all things that are necessary. They allow us to continue to function on a day-to-day basis where we're not breaking down at work 
or, you know, flipping off people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like an in, 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 internal anger, right? So it allows us to kind of be centered to the point where we can function. And those things obviously are necessary. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that are necessary. I think also um, honoring those feelings of anger and sadness and grief and pain are all also necessary as well. So I think coping and self-care is absolutely necessary on the day-to-day level. But I think more um, important is this deep work. It's the decolonization that I was talking about. So unlearning and then relearning. Um, unlearning and questioning, examining the stories that we were been told, the indoctrination that we've had, why things are the way they are, what what are the things that you've told yourself about, you know, uh, the things that you have erased, you unearth all of that, and then you relearn, okay, what is new? What do I have to look towards now? Um, relearning and engaging in these conversations in these healthy places. So, but that, that unlearning is something that needs to be done across the board. It's not just for the black community, this, this mentality of decolonizing the mind, it has to happen across the board. Like the entire society needs to be decolonized. Every institution is colonized. Every thought process. I mean, the fact that you go up, you go into schools as a child and you're learning certain things and you learn history that um, doesn't include all history and it's not your history. And it's in a certain way, for example, when they talk about, you know, Christopher Columbus discovering, what do you mean discovering? The people lived there before. He didn't discover it. There's people, a whole entire (laughs) nation of people who lived there before. So he didn't discover it. So it's just the way things are phrased. And it's it's in, in that understanding how things and why things are taught the way they do and how that affects the people that are learning it. So this idea of decolonization, I think, is important. And that is what I mean by digging out the root as opposed to just putting a Band-Aid over the symptoms. We need to dig out the room. Everything needs to be rethought and unlearned. We need to create new systems that allow for people to be seen, heard, and for real knowledge and history to be presented. You said everything. I think, you know, when you talk about healing at a time like this, I think it really makes sense to compare it to what we're going through. There's a pandemic, there's this virus going around, and every individual has to wash their hands, wear a mask. They got to be cautious in, you know, just to take care of themselves. And then when you're out in public, you've got to do certain things in order to not spread it to others. Now, at the same time, the entire world is working on trying to figure out what can we do in order to, one, develop a vaccine, cure it, and extract it all together. So this is a collective effort in order to make sure that more people aren't dying. So when we're talking about healing regarding this whole race issue, everyone has to do their part. Myself, I've got to make sure that I'm talking to my friends about it and educating them and letting them know where they need to change if they're not seeing it. And those people who aren't a minority, aren't black or brown, need to look at themselves and really evaluate the decisions that they make, what they say, how they interact with people in order to make change. And then the rest of the world as a society needs to make changes in order to make this effective. So it's such a big thing in order to heal. So actually, 
I, it's really fascinating to hear the comments that both of you make there because Olu, firstly, the notion of, of comparing what's happening in the world with COVID-19 to what's happening with uh, this push around BLM, it's kind of interesting because in many ways, racism can be viewed as a virus. I guess the difference is that with um, pandemic, you know that a vaccine can eradicate it. And in this case, when we're talking about BLM, it's not so much a vaccine, it's a series of tweaks and changes and shifts to perception and thought process and kindness and empathy that can yield that outcome. There's certainly a lot of crossover there. And then, Nikki, you talked about the idea of unlearning and relearning. This is kind of something that I thought was kind of neat. My mom is part of a United Church, and the minister of that church recently gave everybody some sort of homework where there was a variety of different items related to um, Black culture that they were sort of challenged to go read up on and learn about. And the one that my mom was issued was actually the history of hip hop. And I'm a huge hip hop head. I've been a really, really big fan since sort of the early 90s. So we ended up talking for like three hours about the origins of hip hop. And we ended up listening to a whole bunch of music and spending time just kind of chatting about it. And I remember at the end, I was thinking that is super kind of fascinating because we never would have done that a couple months ago or a couple of years ago, but she was really taking some steps to broaden her own understanding of the culture. I thought that was really cool and kind of speaks to the idea of relearning different things because historically, I think for a lot of white people, if they're thinking of hip hop music, it can be perceived as more sort of like aggressive, but maybe they didn't understand the roots, where that was coming from and how it was so justified. So just kind of interesting on the topic of relearning. I do think there are some things that are happening all around us that will hopefully yield some better outcomes. And on that note, I'm curious. So we're talking about reform, relearning, unlearning, eradicating this virus called racism. If we're having this conversation a year from now, and you're both thinking that the world is a much better place, and you're really, really happy about the progress that's been made in that year, and you feel hopeful about the future, what do you think our reality will be a year from now if that were the case? If change is actually made, or what do I think our reality is going to be in a year from now? If you were really happy with the world a year from now and the changes that had taken place in that year, what does that world look like to you? That's a hard question, Tom, man. I'm, 30, I'm 36. I don't even remember. Look, I needed to sleep. I don't even remember how old I am, but I'm in my late 30s. <laughs> and it's hard for me to like unsee and unthink about all my entire life. But I think it's hard to pinpoint a year because I do understand that this change is going to be slow. So if I'm happy a year from now, oof. Something drastic would have to happen in order for that to happen in a year. Like a year doesn't seem plausible to me. I mean, if I'm thinking about being happy, happier, I can answer maybe happier in a year, but not happy, like in the sense that I think we've eradicated racism in a year. I think happier would look like real identification. I think if we have a real acknowledgement and identification of the issue across the board where people are like, yeah, that's messed up. Like colonization really fucked us up and real understanding of like how colonization and capitalism and how all that has worked to create even now modern day slaves and, and how that has completely funneled into all the systems that we call society today. And everybody's like, man, that's so messed up that we did that. Just the acknowledgement, if a year from now, everybody, if it was taught in schools and it was something they talked about on the news and then they had 
you know, the greatest minds all around the world coming together to come and figure out what the solution is, I would be so happy because that's for me is just acknowledging that there's an issue. Now we still have people that are talking, that are fighting over whether or not this is really real or whether we need police reform or whether or not um, we have modern day slaves and a lot of things that is like, seriously, are you blind? So I think for me, I would be happier if within a year this was understood kind of like um, sunscreen, like, you know, like you put, you put your, you go outside and, and you put on um, sunscreen because you know that you can get cancer of the skin or whatever. Nobody's debating that. So people go out, they put sunscreen. If it was kind of like that, where people just understood, oh yeah, of course you put sunscreen on. Like it's one of these, of course, of course we would change it. Of course it's a problem. Like that global acknowledgement across the board. Oh, what a happy day. What a happy year. That would be a happier time is the world realizes what colonization has done to us and, you know, at least start making steps in order to, to change it. You know, having a global discussion about it would be huge because it's something that's never happened. And history shows that this is exactly what started everything, what destroyed everything, if you think about it. It's kind of like smoking. Like way back when, when smoking was like, oh, everybody smoked and it was like, people um, made it seem like it was the sophisticated thing to do and the commercials all, you know, and now everybody knows smoking is like terrible for you. So nobody's debating whether or not smoking will kill you, you know, but back then it's like, oh, no, 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 it's not going to kill you. And people thought that you were, you were weird. And when you're talking about how smoking will kill you and no, 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 now everybody knows it's terrible. It's kind of the same thing that I'm looking for. It's a widespread thing and everybody knows it's terrible. And then we can start looking at, okay, how do we now fix the issue? Now, before we go, I'd love to talk about momentum really quickly. We're weeks removed, of course, from when it all kicked off with the video that we saw of George Floyd. We're not seeing as many protests. We're not seeing as many posts on social media as consistently as we did. What do we have to do or what would you both like to see to keep this momentum going while kind of incorporating everyday life and other issues as well, of course? like COVID, which is still very much alive and well, but other societal issues. But what would you like to see from the public to keep this going? So a year from now, when we can revisit this conversation or reunite with the two of you, we can have some positive outcomes to talk about. I think that's a great question. And I've, it's actually something that I've been struggling with because since all this has kind of popped off, I've had uh, my the entirety of my feed and all the things that I've put out on public, you know, and social platforms have all been circled around this issue, um, race and racism. And now that things have kind of been dying down, I've been having a hard time because I'm, again, a designer and I haven't been posting any of my work. I haven't been doing the work that I am actually here to do, right? So I've been battling with this idea of if I start posting now pretty pictures, this, I'm feeling the sense of grief that I don't want to go back to normal. And I think when you talk about shifting and this new norm, I think it's this idea because I, before this whole global shift has happened, I'm not just talking about racism and this issue. I'm talking about everything, the pandemic. And when, before all this happened, I think we were all living in a bubble of sorts where it's kind of like we were living in a three-dimensional Instagram feed where everything was kind of like tempered and you do, you do the right thing and you say the politically correct thing and 
you know, everybody was just kind of trying to stay within the lines. And then all of a sudden everything got shaken up and everybody's waking up to like, oh man, this was like a really weird reality that we were living in. So I think the new norm and figuring out how to go about and moving through life, I think it looks a lot like truth. So as a designer, doing my truth in my, in my work, putting that out there, but also it not being awkward or strange to talk about real issues as well, because that's been the thing. It's like everybody was at the beginning was really afraid to talk about the issues like, oh, I don't talk about this on my feed. I don't do this. I don't post about these sort of things. because I don't want to be too political. And I think the same way we've normalized talking about gay rights, for example, like it's not so heated when we talk about gay rights. It's not so heated when we talk about all these other political issues. And I think going back to normal life looks like the idea that we can talk about the things that actually affect us. We can talk about the things that we actually care about. And it doesn't seem out of place because people are welcoming the discussion. People are welcoming real life and truth. What's really sad is that, like you said, like it's starting to die down. It feels like the momentum is kind of dying. Even in the past few weeks, you've seen a spark in it when we're faced with tragedy. Like recently we had that, I think he was a 64-year-old man that was killed by police here in Mississauga. And it was, I believe, as a wellness check and he got killed. So in Mississauga, there was people protesting and large numbers, you know, talking about this. I think that we need to act before another tragedy happens. Now that we're still on this high, we need to make sure our presence is seen. Make sure our politicians know that we're upset about A, B, and C, and these are the changes that we want. We got to push for these changes in law enforcement, in education. We need to push for this stuff in order to make it happen. You don't necessarily need to be on social media posting about stuff. That is good in order to keep everyone aware of what's going on. But in order to move forward and to actually see change, we need to make sure we're touching those people with power so that they can actually make the change that needs to, that needs to happen. And just to add on to that, I think what um, can add some comfort is that what we were doing the past three weeks was an outcry of pain, grief, whatever, that all the emotions that came up. That's not sustainable. You can't be angry forever, right? So I think that anger was just an, an brimming over of sorts, which needed to happen so that we can get people's attention, so that people know that this is an issue, so that we know that we have an army of sorts. But I think where the army becomes stronger is now channeling that energy into sustainable things. So like we were talking about throughout the episode, what, what does that mean for you? How does that translate for you? So take those emotions and make sure, sure, you might not be posting about it on social media. You might not be protesting every day on the streets and all this, but how do you implement that in your own life? And those four pillars that I was talking about looking at that. So, so if you can, if you can only touch two of those pillars, perhaps because those are the only things that's as far as you can reach, then you work on that, whether it's internal and interpersonal, because everybody can do internal and interpersonal. And then the institutional and structural, then looking either to affect change because you are calling people with that are touching those areas to make change, whether it's your workplace 
Or if you're in a position of power where you can actually make these decisions, then you make changes within there. So I think, although we may not see it, it appears to die down. But if we can all commit to doing the work and affecting those changes in all those four pillars, eventually we start breaking down this old system or perhaps not even breaking down the system, but creating a new one, which I think is a, a lot more uplifting. You know, breaking down something that's massive, it seems very daunting. But if you talk about creating something new, then you get creative, you know, then it's an, a, a positive outlook. So and I too want to um, encourage any creatives out there, or fellow content creators and influencers to really take hold of their platforms and use it as a space for good to continue having these conversations because like you said, they're necessary. And this is going to be continuous battle. It's going to be a continuous conversation that we all need to have. And for anyone out there who doesn't have a platform yet, it's so simple to actually start one like Tom and I did with this podcast. Any which way to have those conversations, I really encourage everyone to do so. And on that note, Olu and Nikki, thank you again for being a part of this conversation. And we hope that we can continue having them with the two of you. Thank you. We hope so too. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you guys again using your platform to amplify ours. 